At a recent leadership conference I attended with our church staff, I got to hear Alan Mullally, former president and CEO of Ford Motor Company during the tenuous years of 2006 to 2014, recount how he led Ford's transformation from a company that was losing $17 billion a year into one of the world's leading automobile industries today. Mullally told some powerful stories of what he did to change the culture of Ford and make it a profitable company. But one story I thought clearly illustrated what our passage for today is talking about. It was his first day on the job. He just agreed to take on the role of president and CEO despite the company's bleak forecast. He flew out to the worldwide headquarters of Ford in Dearborn, Michigan to meet all the executives and all the leaders of the company and figure out what needed to be done. Where do you start? Malawi recounts, the first thing that happened was they picked me up from the airport to go to Ford's worldwide headquarters in a Land Rover. <laughs> and he said to himself, note to self, this is not a Ford. Then they drive them to the building, and as they're pulling into the worldwide headquarters of Ford, where all the leaders and all the executives are working to make this company great, he looks around at the entire parking garage, and there are no Ford cars to be seen. Note to self, he said, all the executives are driving other cars. Now that story doesn't just reveal how bad it was at Ford at the time Malali started. It also reveals a dynamic sometimes at work in our own lives. I'm sure those Ford execs, especially the sales ones, were saying and telling people, Ford is great, it's a good brand, you should, work, you should invest in it. But they weren't driving Fords themselves. There was an inconsistency between what they said and how they lived. This kind of inconsistency between what we say and how we live can be true in our own life of faith as well. My youth pastor from years ago used to repeatedly encourage us to live out our faith with integrity in our public high school. The way he, the way he said it, to go with the car metaphor, was don't be a Chevy salesman driving a Ford. What he meant was don't believe one thing and live another altogether in your personal life. When it comes to faith, this is one of the top reasons people reject Christianity. They've known too many so-called Christians who don't look any different from anyone else around them. Sometimes, in fact, they're worse. Whether it's Christian business people lying and cheating to climb their way up the ladder, or church kids cheating on tests, none of us appreciates hypocrisy. We'd much rather have someone not even claim to be a Christian than to say that they are and not live like one. I mean, can you really trust that Ford's a great car if all their execs are driving Land Rovers and other brands? If you've ever been frustrated with people who claim one thing and don't live it out with their lives, then have I got a text for you. You're not alone. The writers of the Bible were frustrated with this too. Listen to how James, Jesus' little brother, said in his short book in the New Testament, James 1, 22 to 25. 
Do not merely listen to the word. He's talking about Jesus' teachings here. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and then goes away after looking at himself and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, I realize there are passages in the Bible that are hard to understand. Sometimes there are difficult linguistic or cultural issues that require careful thinking about how this should be contextualized for our setting. This, however, is not one of those. <laughs> Looking at these verses, what would you say the point of this passage is? Do it, live it out. Live out your faith. Put your money where your mouth is. Talk is cheap. Don't just listen. Obey. Do, do, do. James reminds me of an employee stuck in a staff meeting where they are wordsmithing the eloquent vision statement of a company. And after two hours, he bursts out, enough talking about what we're going to do. Let's just do it. James is frustrated with mere words. He wants action. So you've learned today, you can in fact interpret the Bible, or at least some parts of it. John and I are out of a job. And you've also learned that it is in fact the first century disciple and brother of Jesus, James, not Nike, that coined the phrase, just do it. It's too late for James uh, for the royalties to be passed to him, but maybe you can still think of this phrase whenever you hear these words. Okay, so the main point of these verses is don't just know God's commands. Live them. Just do it. Let your life witness to what you believe. In my first year at seminary, I had a professor challenge us along these lines. Gordon Fee was one of the top scholars of the day in his disciplines. Let me just say, this guy had knowledge. I was so excited to be able to learn from him, but I'll never forget one of the first days we were in class and we were studying a passage of the Bible similar to this, and he lamented, ah, oh, if I could just live out what I already know. Most of us don't need to know anymore. We just need to do what we already know. And that challenged my view of what I would get out of my experience there. Information is fine, but transformation is what it's really about. If you're relatively new to the Christian faith or you've recently returned to church, I know sometimes it's easy to feel badly about what you don't know. But for James, and by extension for us, it's not really the knowing that matters most. It's the doing. So don't worry about what you don't know. Just seek to live out what you do know. Now I have to admit, with the message, it's not what you know, it's how you live that matters, I was tempted to end the sermon right here. <laughs> Enough said. Let's just go and do what we already know. Unfortunately for you, I was given two passages to look at today, so hang in there with me. So let me just highlight what we've seen in James 1, 22 to 25 before moving on. First, 
do not merely listen to the word. The only or merely here shows that us, that James isn't saying knowing isn't important. How can you do what you do not know? It's implicit that knowing how God wants us to live is important. But knowing what we're to do is only the first step, not the last. The whole point of knowing is seeing it manifested in our lives. Second, do what it says. Some of the more mature among us in this room may have had the experience of walking into a room and then forgetting why you came in there in the first place. (laughs) That's called getting old. Happens to me a lot these days. Um, But the analogy James uses in verses 23 and 24 about the man looking at his face in the mirror and then immediately forgetting what he saw is called a lack of change. Hearing, but not doing. It's reading the Bible, hearing a sermon, going to church, and walking out, and then that having no effect on how you live the rest of the day. It's as if you'd never heard it. It's in one ear and out the other. Don't be like that, James pleads. Instead, we're to listen and then do what we've heard continually on a daily basis, not once a year or once a week, just on Sundays, but the other six days too, in our homes, in our workplaces, at family gatherings. We never graduate from the school of discipleship to Jesus. And for those of us who need a little incentive, James tells us in verse 25 that if we look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and do it, we will be blessed in what we do. See, this is a good life. Remember, this is the perfect law that gives freedom. God doesn't give us commandments to take away our fun. He is good. He created us and knows what will enable us to thrive. This is actually a good way to live. You could build your life on this. In fact, when James wrote this, he may have been recalling his big brother Jesus' words to the crowds in Matthew 7, 24 to 25. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. You and I can build our lives on Jesus' teachings, not just knowing them, but actually living them out. And even though we will still face the storms of life, we will still stand. This is rock solid stuff. Well, that's all fine and good, Amy. We should live out what we believe. Well then, what actually is the relationship between faith in God and doing good works? Am I saying that faith alone isn't enough? That we have to do something, obey? in order to really be considered a follower of Jesus? What is the nature of true saving faith? And here is where our second passage fits in. Just before I read it, I want you to know that this passage has created some tension throughout Christian history. It talks about the relationship between faith and works, between believing in God and living in obedience to him. 
We need to remember that unlike other religions, Christianity claimed people could have eternal life, not because of the good deeds they had done, but because of what Jesus had done for them through his death on the cross. The Apostle Paul summarizes this view in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, when he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works or deeds, so that no one can boast. Elsewhere, in Romans 3.28, he says, for we maintain that a person is justified or saved by faith apart from works or deeds of the law. A bedrock of Christianity from its inception was that faith alone provides access to God. Listen now to James 2.14 to 26 and see if you can understand why it created such a conflict for the first Christians. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith and has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and be fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. (laughs) Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Can you see why this passage was so upsetting? Paul had clearly stated that faith alone is what saves us, not works. But James seems to be saying it is faith plus works that saves us or makes us right with God. So which is it? I know that these two may seem far apart initially, but I think they are much closer than they appear. In fact, I would go so far as to say they are saying the same thing, just with different emphases. Look at this line here and imagine that there is a dot at the bottom, so the line is going up to the left from the bottom center. Paul is, in speaking to a community focused on doing works, following the laws of the Torah, is reacting to an overemphasis on works and reminding them that faith alone saves. There is nothing we can do to make God love us anymore and nothing we can do to make him love us any less. In that sense, our works don't matter. They aren't what saves us. Trusting in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for forgiveness is what saves us. James, on the other hand, is speaking to a community focused on faith. How you live doesn't really matter. 
So he is reacting to this underemphasis on works and reminding them that what they believe should affect how they live. If you've been with us in this series for the last few weeks on the book of James, you've heard a number of ways James' audience isn't living out their faith. They have, they're allowing socioeconomic differences to divide them. They are not thoughtful about their speech. They're having quarrels and fights among them. Apparently, all they need is faith. But that faith isn't really affecting how they live. That faith is causing all kinds of problems. And so James reiterates again and again in these verses that faith and deeds are inseparable. What you believe and how you live must be held together. Verse 14, what's the use if you have faith but don't have deeds? The question begs a negative response. Verse 17, if you just have faith without it being accompanied by action, it's dead. And then he's gonna elaborate on that analogy again in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I did try to think of a different analogy here because this one is not pleasant. But it fits so well with the point. I'm sticking with James. A human body without a living human spirit is a corpse. And no one would mistake a corpse, the body, for a living human being, the spirit. Similarly, James says, real faith comes from having both faith, a body, and works, a spirit that animate and give life to that body. What we believe about God, our faith must be lived out or animated by living in obedience to him. James then uses an example of Abraham to make this point. And what he does here is so brilliant. Abraham, you may remember, was the quintessential patriarch of the Jewish people from whom they were all descended. Abraham was told by God he would have a son and the son would be father of many nations. And even though Abraham was too old to have children, he had faith that God would do this impossible thing. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul emphasizes how Abraham's faith is what saved him. And he cites Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, meaning he pleased God with his faith. Well, James takes that same verse, Genesis 15, 6, in verse 23, and he reinterprets it saying, it's not just that Abraham believed God. His belief, in fact, was what led him to obey in Genesis 22, when he nearly sacrificed his son. Thankfully, Abraham did not have to sacrifice Isaac. God stopped him from doing it. But the point James is making is that Abraham's faith caused him to obey. So maybe these two ideas, faith and works, aren't quite as far apart as we thought. Maybe they are two angles or two sides making the same point that real faith is manifested in how we live. This isn't faith plus work equals salvation. It's faith at work that equals salvation, or a faith that works. Or as one commentator said, James isn't arguing a Christian must add faith to work. He insists that true saving faith will work. 
This is clearly stated in verse 22. So you see that his, Abraham's faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. In other words, we are to have a faith that works or acts in obedience to God. In fact, if you look closely, you'll see Paul isn't in conflict with James at all. The two are both saying the same thing. Real faith gets lived out in our lives. James, faith, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Paul, elsewhere in the New Testament, uses the phrases, obedience that comes from faith. That's Romans 5.1. Or faith expressing itself through love. Galatians 5, 6. And why must our faith be manifested by how we live? Because the kind of faith we are to have is not just giving intellectual assent to some beliefs. It's not enough to say God is real or Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. Even the demons believe that, he says. We aren't giving intellectual assent to some idea. We are trusting a person. That's why obedience matters. True faith lies in surrendering ourselves to God and choosing to obey him. So what does this mean for us? What's the do? First, some of us here today may need to consider what kind of faith we have. Is our faith merely giving intellectual assent to some beliefs about God? Or is it trusting in the person of Jesus Christ, not only to forgive our sins, but to become the leader of our lives? Is our faith just in our head, or does it get animated by how we live? There's no shame in not knowing if you trust Jesus yet. If you're going to trust someone with your life, You'd better make sure first they're trustworthy, hadn't you? If you aren't there yet, but you're interested in learning more about who Jesus is, I want to invite you to consider coming to Alpha this fall. You'll have the opportunity to explore what faith in God is in a safe, non-threatening environment. You'll hear more about Alpha in the coming weeks. Second, some of us here today may need to hear, just do it. Maybe we've been trusting Jesus for some time and we have a faith that trusts Jesus with our lives. But we all have a gap between what we know we should do and what we actually do. And the call today is to do what we can to close that gap. So what is the one area in your life, my life, that we know God would want us to live differently and we just aren't doing it. Maybe it's how we relate with those closest to us. Maybe it's how we handle anxiety or worry. Maybe it's becoming more content or generous or forgiving or joyful. I don't know what it is for you, but maybe this week you will choose to give some thought to get serious about this, to commit to growing in this area of your life over the next year. There are lots of resources available for us in making changes in our lives. We have God's spirit in us to empower us. We have one another. 
And we have the richness of the Christian tradition over the centuries. Others who've gone before us and who've sought to root out pride and bitterness and fear and other harmful things from their lives. And we can learn from their practices. Talk with a friend and get their input on how you might change. Just do it. But just don't try to do it alone. Real faith, James reminds us, is not only believing with our heads, it's also working it out in our lives. It isn't just agreeing to certain truths about God. It's trusting God with our lives, living in obedience to his ways, out of a firmly held conviction that his way is truly the path towards a good life. Do we have that kind of faith? Are our lives consistent with what we say we believe? Or are we Ford executives driving Land Rovers? No, we can't expect to be completely consistent this side of heaven. We'll all have a gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live. But we can work to close that gap. We can be intentional about demonstrating with our lives that what we, what we say we believe, for our sake, for this is the good way to live, and for the sake of our watching world, yearning to see that faith in Jesus makes a difference in how we live. For our very example, Jesus himself didn't just say what he believed. He lived it. When our situation was hopeless, God didn't say, mm, that's too bad. Somebody should really do something about that sin problem. No, he acted. Paul puts it like this in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus paid a high price his very life to ensure that we would always know his love for us and his power over sin and brokenness. And it is true. There is nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. And there is nothing we can do to make him love us any less. And it is only that kind of love that can elicit in us such gratitude and devotion to yield all of our lives to him. Let's pray. Oh God, more than anyone can see, you know the gap in each one of us between what we know we should do and what we do. And we are reminded today that for our sake and for the sake of your name being proclaimed, people seeing this is real, this is good, we want to be people who live with integrity who do what we hear. We can only do this with your help and with your grace. So grant us now, Holy Spirit, the wisdom, the courage, the strength, the energy to know what you want us to focus on and then give us the power to do it. Give us grace with one another. Give us patience. We thank you and we love you that your way is solid rock. In Jesus' name, amen.